Our reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is found on page 961 of your Bibles. We read the historical account of what happened when they found the empty tomb. And this is Paul encountering in Corinth ideas that were attacking the resurrection, treating it in a mocking fashion, uh, treating it as unnecessary. These people thought they were the new spirituals that already entered into the angelic life and, and all they needed to do was finally just shed the body. And so resurrection, because they were so influenced by Greek thinking, just didn't make sense at all. And so Paul is speaking into that situation, giving us the, the fact of the resurrection and then the absolute necessity of the resurrection. So let's begin then with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep, that is those who've died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious sending of your Son, O great God of love, that he would sacrifice himself for our sake in wondrous love, and that he was raised for our sake to bring us into new life now and to ultimate and final resurrection life in that last day. Oh, Lord, we worship you. We pray that you would help us be nourished on these truths today for your sake. Amen. This morning, I'm especially going to be speaking to uh, those of you who may be visiting and those of you who may be looking into the claims of Christ. And for that reason, uh, I'm going to give a lot of backstory to the resurrection, give a lot of biblical context for the resurrection, so that perhaps if some of these things are new to you, you could uh, understand more fully what the very meaning of the resurrection is. So, let's take the story back, uh, way back. In fact, instead of saying, once upon a time... I want to say once before time, uh, before the world, when there was just God. Now, you may be thinking when there was just God and you were there watching him that it'd be kind of like watching one of those lions at the zoo for 45 minutes and you're sitting there asking, when is he going to do something, right? But it wasn't that way at all with God. We get a glimpse of what was going on with God in the very prayer Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. In that prayer, Jesus addressed God as his Father, and he spoke of the love that he experienced with the Father before the world began. And he talked about the glory he shared with the Father before the world began. And I just want to say, if you ever hear me pray on a Sunday morning, uh, oh yeah, Lord, and uh, also restore me to the glory that I, Darwin Jordan, had with you before the world began, please call 911. Okay. What a claim, right? Jesus was claiming, in a matter-of-fact way, in his prayer to God, he was claiming to be the same great as God. And to share the same glory of God in a relationship with God before the world began. And this is just part of the teaching, the amazing teaching of the Bible, that God had relationship within himself, not only Father and Son, as Jesus talked about, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world began. And mysterious as that may be, here's the important thing. Before the world was, there was love. Before the world, there was love within God himself. 
exhilarating, self-giving love within God. Each one centering on the other. Each one enveloping the other and harboring the other. It it was like a drama, or C.S. Lewis says it was like a dance. It, It was a dance of profound, unlimited happiness. All of this before the world began. So, what about that world? What about creation itself? Well, because God's need love was completely satisfied within himself, he didn't create the world to get something from it, but to give himself away freely to the world. He was certainly joyful in creating the world, but he didn't create it to get joy He created the world to give joy out of the abundant happiness that was within himself. Kids, we've talked about this some while back, but I want to remind you of that little book, Dinner with Fox, where Thin Red Fox was very, very hungry. And he has an idea. He's going to invite white hen and brown hair over to what he calls a rather special meal and a particularly delicious recipe. They're excited, honored that that they get to come to a meal that Fox will prepare for them. And kids, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, they are the main course. He just forgot to tell them that small little detail, right, that you're going to be the one eating at this meal. And you see, this is such a contrast with God because God is not out to use us. He's not out to abuse us. He's not out to get something from us or to take something from us. He has all joy in himself. But the sad fact is that we treat God's invitation to trust him and obey him as if he were Red Fox. Some of you, even sitting here, probably think of God like Red Fox. That's why you don't trust Him with your life. You think God will eat up your happiness. Instead, God always seeks our happiness. That's God and His world. So what about us in that world? Well, God sought our happiness in making us Amazingly, in his image, the very first chapter of the Bible tells us. And he made us in his image so that we can know him and delight in him. He made us so that he made us for himself that we could slake our thirst in him. So this means uh, the real point of enjoying a penguin's waddle or Downton Abbey, or a sonic pineapple shake, or the new Margaret Hunt Hill Bridge in Dallas, or a thumbnail moon, or the Lumineers, or Calvin and Hobbes. The point is to enjoy God in it, to enjoy these things in His presence, in fellowship with Him, in gratitude to Him in submission to Him, in honor of Him. He's to be the whole point of everything we do in life. So we'll never find our life, even in the best of creation and culture by itself, 
As C.S. Lewis says, the beauty is not in these things. The beauty comes through these things. The beauty is in God. We won't find it in these things because, frankly, we're too magnificent for these things. We are made in the image of God. And we're made for God, ultimately. Not anything in this earth, ultimately. And it's just here, the Bible tells us, that the story of mankind became tragically dark. Instead of enriching ourselves in God as we enjoy all things, we chose to try and enjoy all things apart from God, without God, instead of God, against God. Basically, we want his stuff, but we don't want him. Right? It's like a young woman happens to find this particular old man disgusting. She can't stand to be with him. She can hardly look at him. But she still marries him so she can get his money, hoping every day that he will drop dead. And the Bible says concerning God, every one of us became that woman. Every one of us. Idolaters. And it's not only how we deal with creation and culture, it's the same with relationships. Now, relationships are God's great gift. This God of love made us in His image, and so naturally, relationships of love are what life is all about because we're made in His image. Friends and family are absolutely critical to our well-being and happiness. And that's why loneliness and broken relationships are so devastating. We're made in the image of God who is relationship. But we will not even find our life in relationships alone. We have to have God himself even in our relationships. And perhaps you have an amazing network of supportive and loving family and friends and They enrich you and sustain you through difficulty. But if in the end you enjoy all of these relationships apart from God, then even the best of His gifts has become your idol. It's become your substitute for God. It's become even a mockery of God. That you would exclude the God who made you for relationship in your relationships. What a mockery. And on top of that, each of us knows how infected we are anyway with jealousy and envy and gossip and anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge and lust. I mean, get this. We turn from God, make people our idols, and then we turn on the very idols we've made. Pretty sad. It shows in the end that the real idol, the real substitute God, Yeah, it's me. Each one of us is born all essentially living for himself or herself instead of living for God. So there's God and the world and our situation against God. What's a God to do in that situation? So here the story gets unreal. I mean really unreal so far out of our thinking as human beings. 
For these people, God the Father graciously sends God the Son into the world where he actually joined himself to our humanity. We're told that the Holy Spirit accomplished this through a virgin, likely a teenager. Her name was Mary. She gave birth to a baby, and she gave him the name the angel had told her, Jesus. Here's the fascinating thing. He continued to be the God that made all things, but now he was a human being as well. We, we say he was the God-man. God had come to take flesh and blood. And as the Son's perfect image, Jesus could actually say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. He also said, I always do the will of my Father. So in everything he said, in everything he did, he he did and said exactly what the Father would have said and done. He was fully showing the character of God. So while he showed the power and compassion of God in his miracles, his interactions with people, he showed his Father's wisdom in his teaching, the real thing I want to focus on is how he revealed the Father's justice and goodness in his death and resurrection. This passage talks about his death briefly, doesn't it? That Christ died for our sins. Peter put it this way, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, this is pictured really clearly in the history because his death occurred right at the time of Passover. This was on purpose. Not the Romans' purpose or the Jews' purpose, but God's purpose for it to occur right at the time of the Passover feast. That was a celebration of when in Egypt, a thousand years before, over a thousand years before, this death angel went out from God to take the life of the firstborn in every household in Egypt. This was the last of a series of judgments God was bringing on Egypt because they would not release Israel uh, from slavery. But through God's merciful provision, each Israelite home sacrificed a lamb and spread its blood on the doorway of that house. It indicated that a life had already been taken in that house. Seeing the representation of that shed blood, the the life that had been taken, the angel saw the blood and he passed over that house and did not kill the firstborn. The lamb died in place of the firstborn. And that night, the contrast was startling. While the Israelites in their homes enjoyed a feast of roasted lamb in the presence of God, the Egyptians, apart from that blood, suffered God's judgment, the death of the firstborn. In each home, either judgment fell on the lamb or it fell on the firstborn. Christ's death took place at Passover to announce that anyone who trusts in his death, anyone who takes his blood as their protection, that person is rescued from all punishment of their sin and they're brought into the full, sweet fellowship and favor of God. 
Christ is displayed in the Bible as the true Lamb of God who died in the place of His people so that judgment would pass over them. And that's why wonderfully Paul can say, if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for you. Not even a little bit. It's gone. The staggering act of the Son in bearing the wrath of God so that anyone who trusts in Him has his or her guilt or punishment taken away. And so John, talking about this great act, says this, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Here it is. Why did God send His Son and sacrifice His Son? He did it because of His love. You remember that love we were talking about between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that self-giving love from all eternity. Well, in the work of Christ, that self-giving love turned out and it gave itself away to sacrifice itself, even for sinners. And John is saying, in effect... We had no idea what kind of love was in God until it was shown in the person of Christ. We had no idea. In this, love was manifested. Paul further explores this love in Romans. He starts by talking about how if any one of us would die for someone, we would die for someone good, right? And then he says, but God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. You see his point, we, as we've seen, are open idolaters, worshipers of ourselves instead of God. None of us wanted God. We just wanted his stuff. And Paul says, As we were turned against God, as we refused God, He died for us. That's His love. And we do have wonderful examples, don't we, of people dying for others. In Pakistan, Adizaz Hassan Bangash discovered one Monday morning going to school, this was this past January, that a fella dressed in school uniform was indeed a suicide bomber. Instead of running, he grabbed the guy outside of school, struggled with him, the bomb went off, killed him and the bomber. And only two children were injured. Probably saved the lives of hundreds of kids. He died for his friends. And we regard these acts of heroism as the greatest things that people do, don't we? We we do. We give medals, and rightly so, for men who've risked their lives, given their lives to save others in combat. Here's the thing. Christianity has a God like that. Christianity has a God like that. There's no religion that sets forth a hero God who came to earth to sacrifice his life And that not for classmates, not for fellow soldiers, not for citizens, but for those who are at the time his enemies. That's the God that's presented in the Bible. 
Our version of that would be purposely dying in the place of someone who had harmed you or your family or still trying to harm you and your family. And that's why Paul can say in another place, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge just soars out there. It has no end. It's so glorious. And then finally, there's the resurrection, which has been treated in the passages. The resurrection that we especially celebrate today, though we actually, believers, celebrate that resurrection every day. We live in that resurrection. He says here, of course, that he was raised on the third day. And you recall here that he said, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, why would that be? What does he mean here? Well, his resurrection, you see, tells us that his death was not a normal human death. Not like, oh, well, it's over, he's gone. Like every human being, you finally succumb to the power of death. That's that, back to business as usual. Because you see, death indicates judgment. And if Christ died and remained dead, then Christ himself remained under the power of judgment and death like every other person. Christ's release from death could only mean one thing. Punishment for sin was swallowed up by Christ. He took God's wrath on himself like pulling something on top of him so that it would crush him instead of us. Wrath is gone for any who trust in Christ. Death and judgment are over. That's what the resurrection declares. He is released. We are released from the guilt of punishment. And he did this for us, entering into our flesh and death to take us out of death. And it's not just death, it's everything death represents. To save us ultimately out of all suffering and pain, out of all broken relationships, all crime, all abuse, all lying, all pain any human being causes another human being. And to take us out of the miseries of life, to take us finally out of sickness and disease and bodily breakdown of any kind, to take us out of our mental and physical impairment of any kind, to take us out of all natural disasters. You get the feel of it when he says he's going to destroy every rule and every authority and power. All of his enemies will be under his feet and finally death itself will be gone. All evil and its curse will be gone forever and ever from this world through the death and resurrection of Christ. As joy to the world says, his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that the new creation has begun. The final restoration of all things has begun. What the Jews thought would happen in the final day has broken into the present. And we're tasting it now of the new life in Christ and the new creation. We taste His spiritual life now and one day we'll be raised from the dead with Him and all creation will be restored. Even to the point are we joined with Christ that it said we will be joint heirs with Christ. 
will inherit the whole creation. Our bodies will be made new in power and glory just like His. We'll be completely free of any trace of evil just like He is free from any trace of evil. We'll live in perfect love with one another even as He is perfect love, even as He has always been perfect love in a perfectly remade, remade world. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, one of my favorite passages, all things are yours in Christ. The world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. That's what the resurrection means. And he offers this rescue to you in his son. He offers you forgiveness and full acceptance and favor. He offers you his attentive care all your days, using every single thing in your life for your ultimate, ultimate good, even the most terrible things that will happen to you. And they will. Through Christ's resurrection, He offers you a new spiritual life, new changing desires for good, new strength and motivation for good. He offers you to make you more and more into a person of sacrificial love like He is. To make you into a kind of mini-hero. Even as He is a hero who sacrifices Himself. And He offers His people to befriend you, to care for you, to walk with you, to encourage you, to sustain you in your greatest difficulty, even to suffer with you, and to suffer for you. And because of all this, this God of infinite happiness offers for you to be a person of greater and greater happiness until the full happiness of the new heavens or the new earth. That is this God's love in Christ. That is His gracious offer to any one of you to trust Him even today. And in a day when, thankfully, many Egyptians are trusting Jesus Christ, taking Him as their Savior and hiding themselves under the blood of that Savior, don't be the other kind of Egyptian, rejecting this precious blood offered to you only to, in the end, suffer the judgment of God forever. Oh, enter the new creation even today. Let us pray. Lord God, we praise you for your amazing love in Christ Jesus. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you would bear our sins and for our sake be raised from the dead to defeat death for us so that even when we die, our bodies will still be joined to you Our spirits will go to be with you. And in that final day, our spirits will come with you and be rejoined to a body that is raised up in glory and power, a body that is imperishable, to live forever in your presence in a new earth remade by your mighty power. Lord, thank you. We praise you that you suffered so much for us when we were enemies to give us everything in union with you, enable us to trust you. Give us that faith, Lord. Take away our blindness. 
so that we see you for the God of grace and love that you are. We ask this for your glory and honor and for our good. Amen.